I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person on your next forced social function. Today's topic is... Herge. Actually, it's it's uh, Herge. Oh, okay. Sorry. Who was Herge? He was a Belgian creator of one of the most recognizable and beloved comic book characters of all time, Tintin. He's a Belgian national treasure and an intergenerationally influential artist, and often thought of as one of the greatest cartoonists of all time. But what if we told you a fact about his life that few people want to discuss? He was a Nazi collaborator. Act 1. Georges Remy, by any other name. Born on May 22nd, 1907, Georges Prosper Remy was welcomed into a lower middle-class family. He was born in Etterbeek, Belgium. His father, Alexis Remy, was a baker by trade, and his mother, Elizabeth, was a stay-at-home mother. Can I just say that Hergé is a near doppelganger for Dr. Seuss? Interesting. How so? He just look, they look the same. They look like the same person. Oh, Interesting. And I, it's and it's interesting. It's it's the parallels are even crazier because they both have pseudonyms. They both have pseudonyms that people notoriously pronounce wrong because mm-hmm. it's sort of been just universally adopted now. But the actual way you're supposed to say it is Doctor Souse. Really? Pe- yeah, but people said Doctor Seuss, and now it's like because it's a fake name. It's like why not just make it the thing? It's not like you're mispronouncing your actual name. Yeah, yeah. So it just became Doctor Seuss, but it was supposed to be Doctor Souse. Interesting. I don't know that. Uh, after being exposed to Gertie the Dinosaur as a young child, Hergé became obsessed with Windsor McKay and the art of illustration. He was known to draw compulsively as a child. His school notebooks were filled with drawings, many of which included drawings of, you guessed it, Nazi soldiers, because Belgium was being occupied at this point in history. The First World War was raging around young Hergé as he was growing up. When he turned 12... He became involved in the Boy Scouts and rapidly grew to the role of troop leader, where he was dubbed the Curious Fox by his friends. Curious Fox, which seems like a children's book uh, title. That's yeah, like a, um, fuck, I forget his name, the guy who wrote Brown Bear, Brown Bear. Oh, yeah. Curious Fox probably uh, probably sounds way cooler in French. Once again, we're starting off with, uh, we're getting into that, uh, some kind of pattern of the type of story he tells, because... He's, uh, he was he was in the Boy Scouts, and Tintin is, like, basically mm-hmm. a Boy Scout. Yeah, pretty much. And he, there's... It's like a do-gooder. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, too, because he's tied so... Most of George Remy's life is spent in newspaper offices, and, you know, Tintin's a reporter, and, uh, yeah, it, it, it all links together in a lot of ways. Like, Tintin is, I think, far more biographical than most people think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. During this time, Hergé's scout leader encouraged him to draw, really kind of fostered the love of illustration and kind of pursuing the artistic inclinations that he had. Uh, In fact, this scout leader uh, was the first person to ever publish Hergé's drawings. Uh, He published in a a drawing that Hergé had made of a little, like, Boy Scout character in their kind of, like, weekly newspaper zine thing called Never Enough which is a dope title. The only thing that my scout leader ever encouraged me to do was not run with my hands in my pockets. Well, that's foolish. But to be fair, I've carried that with me to this day. Really? Because I always run with my hands in my pockets. No, because if you trip, you don't have you, your hands can't reach out and stop oh, you're, you. Oh, you're not well-versed in the 
almost forgotten martial arts of run somersaulting. You can't... You just tuck your shoulder in your head and then you just, instead of using your hands to break your fall and potentially breaking your wrists, you just somersault. You can't phase the molecules in your hands into a pocket dimension so they can pass right through your pockets. <laughs> pocket dimension? That wasn't even a... That was pocket a, dimension? That, was yeah. a to- that, was an, uh, that wasn't even on purpose. Yeah. Uh, Hergé would hone his craft of making illustrations for these newsletters and woodcuts for other Boy Scout magazines. Uh, he would work under m- different pseudonyms during this time. Uh, both of these I'm going to butcher. How do you think you pronounce that? Jeremy? Jeremiades? Uh, before he landed on the now... Jeremiades. Jeremiades. That's more of a... That's probably not right, but it's more... Jeremiades is more f- Spanish. Yeah, Spanish, yeah. But the A-D-E-S is more kind of like an odds sound. Yeah, yeah. In French. So, uh, you know, before he lands on his <clears throat> iconic... Uh, Hergé pseudonym. He was using the previously mentioned pseudonyms. Um, he created the the pseudonym for Hergé by uh, flipping his initials and then using the French pronunciation for them. So instead of G R, he flipped them to R G. Now, did he Hergé? Did 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 he all was was he did he just go by the initials or did he like purposely spell it out phonetically. He spelled it out phonetically. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He just got that name by doing the uh, flipping his initials thing. Uh, his first, uh, his first real kind of substantial comics were was a, I mean, honestly, a really like it's Tintin light, it's proto Tintin called the Extraordinary Adventures of Tortor. I mean, that just that sounds like a <laughs> yeah a made up a like, to- Totor Totor. Sorry, it sounds like a like joke, isn't like, it? Yeah, no, but, the, but this character is literally a Boy Scout. Like he wears the uniform, he has the little necker- neckerchief, the hat. Like he's an adventurer. It's I mean, it's it's very poorly drawn Tintin um, because. While Hergé became a brilliant illustrator as a young person, he was not particularly artistically gifted. But I guess that's kind of you're grading on a curve because now people are so exposed to various types of art styles and, you know, visual things. Whereas a kid, you're in the 1910s, 1920s, you're kind of pulling from everyday life and you don't have like codified stylistic rubrics to influence you, you know? Now, as a, as an artiste, um, how yes, an artiste. typical he, it, se- it seems to me like he didn't necessarily have, well, I don't know if this is, this is how I feel, but just, you know, reading it on paper, uh, and the way it's sort of presented, it's like he didn't necessarily have a natural talent or skill for illustration. Mm-hmm. And he just sort of like learned how to do it through just extreme repetition and practice. Obviously all forms of art require extreme repetition and practice. Um, but, you know, do you think that there's a difference between somebody who just has like a natural talent that's sort of innate and then they just hone it versus somebody who's just sort of like beats themselves into submission of getting good at something? Or are those just the same? And, I'm definitely the second. I'm definitely the But the, do you think that there is, is, is the idea of somebody being natural, ta- naturally talented at something a myth and everybody is like that? I don't think it's a myth. I think those <clears throat> people do exist, but I think people use that as a means of self-defeating nine times out of ten. Like I can't, it, it is a skill that you have to nurture. And there's, a, there's no greater pet peeve for me personally. Well, actually, there's, there's one or two, but one of the main pet peeves for me is when someone's like, man, you're so good at drawing. I wish I could be good at drawing. It's like, mm, you could. You just don't want to spend years doing it, which is yeah. what I've done. Hergé would quickly retool this protagonist for the Catholic newspaper called Le Petite Vigitime. I don't know how to pronounce that. 
I feel so disappointed in myself because I've I've always from taking my French classes like I can't speak any French, but I just ha- I've developed an innate knowledge of like how to pronounce things based on how they're spelled in French. But these ones are just they're they're like next level. I'm 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 not <laughs> I'm not getting any of these. Yeah. Uh, well, it translates to the little 20th. It was like a children's insert in uh, a magazine called the 20th Century. Um, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the actual French French words. Um, but yeah, basically, it was kind of like an insert that would have children's content. So adults would buy it and it would be kind of a, you know... Le vingtaine cycle. Yes, that sounds way better than what I was saying. Um, however, saying that the 20th Century was a, in air quotes, Catholic newspaper is a bit of an understatement. Uh, the paper was a hard-right, pro-fascist magazine run by the Catholic Church. They often ran purely anti-Semitic articles, full stop. They were basically like, uh, you know, Fox News, but for Belgium in the 1930s. Their stock and trade were racist caricatures and horribly xenophobic hit pieces. When you're a young artist, you know, you're constantly looking for a way in. You're, you're looking for your foot in the door, and this was... Erge's and he took it what I'm not gonna this is an incomparable scenario because we live in a different time uh so obviously if I was like if you were given the opportunity to have like a recurring uh comic in like a fucking Nazi magazine obviously you would say no uh but the modern equivalent of it is like if you were, I, can't, I, I, I mean, magazines are dead, so I can't even think of an example. But like the if, Fox News website, yeah, yeah, or Breitbart, or like if you were, if someone was like, you can have a show and you can do whatever you want, and you can make it as like left leaning or whatever, or crazy, or you can literally do whatever you want to do. Kind of like in Criminal, that that one uh, arc about the guy who gets that like Newspaper. deal where yeah. he can have like a comic forever in that in that paper and like nobody can ever cancel it. Yeah. Uh, but it was on Fox News. Yeah. What would would you take? Would it? I take it? Yeah. Uh, no, I don't think I would. Mm. I I've turned down deals before that were less artistically compromising <clears throat> than that. I don't see myself taking something that is that. Yeah. But maybe. Uh, I really don't think so though. That that really doesn't seem like something that was in is in my character. Yeah. If I turned down a deal for like only owning forty nine percent of a thing, I really doubt that I'm gonna turn down a deal for owning a hundred percent of a Nazi thing. Like I really don't see that. But I don't know. Hundred percent of a Nazi thing, the Dave Baker story. Right. But I think this is a this is a thing that all artists have to come across, right? There's a there's a <coughs> there's a seesaw teeter-totter relationship between artistic expression and commercial needs right there everybody has that fulcrum that they're bent over and it's fascinating to me to see how people navigate those scenarios and for Hergé I I for Hergé I it's an interesting conversation where as we go on this com this story gets more and more complex and more and more gray up to a point, and then it becomes very black and white for me personally. But the ir- the irony of it is, as soon as it becomes black and white, that's when he makes his career-defining work, which is fascinating because then it, it does beg the question of, like, is it better to sacrifice your morals in order to obtain immortality? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I have the answers to it, but Hergé is a, a globally beloved personality that we're still talking about 40 years later after he died. And we wouldn't be if he didn't, like, yeah. have a comic in a Nazi magazine. Yeah. Or not Nazi newspaper. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a hard... I don't, I don't have a quick and easy answer. Um, yeah, I don't know. 
Um, but I think it's also like it. I think it's germane to also bring up the fact that if his only compromise was that one, that's a, that is one conversation. But he was a person who was kind of plagued with these issues for his entire life. We're going to get into it in a minute, but he was kind of fostered and his father figure was this hard right pseudo Nazi and eventual Nazi sympathizing Catholic priest. His dad was um, a member of an ethnic group in um, in Belgium, like a, you know, a Caucasian ethnic group um, that was looked down on. And I, I, I feel like that is also germane to this conversation because he he feels like a person who is either unaware of the realities of this situation. He's either very innocent, which I don't know if I agree with, but that's something that people say. He didn't know what he was doing. He just wanted to make comics. He didn't really care about the war. He was just making comics, which I understand. Making comics is fucking hard. It consumes your life. You don't have time for anything else. But I feel like if there's a war that you're going to be aware of, it's World War II. Yeah. You know? I don't know. We can get into that, though. Um, So... You know, for the the twentieth, the little twentieth, he creates Tintin, which is a uh, kind of reworked version of uh, Totor, who is an optimistic boy reporter who spends most of his days stopping crimes and globe trotting and doing very little actual writing. Uh, and he, just imagine if he had to create a third iteration of the character based on like transitioning to a different magazine, it would have been like True Tops or Tror Tror Trong Treep <laughs> Trip Trop. Choochie Woochie. <laughs> Dude, I want to read Choochie Woochie. He did he did create some other characters, but none of them were as good as Choochie Woochie. <laughs> Choochie Woochie. I if, love Choochie Woochie. If we have to make a parody where it's like one of us dressed as Tintin with Choochie Woochie as the title, I won't be that upset. I'm just saying, Choochie Woochie. Herge is superior at the paper, the little 20th, uh, is a man named... Norbert Wallace, uh, which is, that sounds like an Eddie Murphy character. Yeah. Did he actually start a movie called Norbert? I don't remember. Norbit. Norbit. Almost. I would 100% watch a Eddie Murphy stars as all these people movie about Hergé and his like wildly problematic past. Though. It's it's like a, it's like a historical drama. Yes. Uh, kind of like uh, whatever that movie was about. Alan Turing. Yeah, yeah. But, the, but 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 Eddie Murphy plays all the characters. Eddie Murphy plays everybody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love this idea. Um, so Norbert Wallace was one of the Catholic priests that worked at the paper, and he quickly became Hergé's role model. He nurtured Hergé's more religious impulses, <coughs> and also encouraged him in his more bigoted and darker impulses. He's like the French. Emperor Palpatine. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. It's really sad, too. Yes. Yes. Hate the Jews. Yes. It's awful. So just, ugh, ugh, it's gross. It was, uh, it was under Wallace's watchful eye that, uh, Hergé created, uh, the two initial Tintin, uh, stories, uh, in the land of the Soviets and Tintin in the Congo, which was later changed to Tintin in Africa. Um, if you're unfamiliar, uh, they're awful and really... It's, it's, it's real really, bad. It's real bad. Like, real, <laughs> real, real racist. And also, it wasn't Congo um, a colony of Belgium at this time? Yeah. Or France? One of the two. Pro- France, probably. France, yeah. Um, so, yeah. I mean, it is like Sambo caricature, awful, red lip city. Like, yeah, it's so offensive. 
we we we've talked about this outside of the podcast before, but the it's weird because it, it, when you watch some of this stuff from the like the forties through the sixties, kind of like in the midst of World War II, and then sort of like the next twenty years of World War II, sort of being fresh on everybody's minds. Yeah, the media that was generated in that period it seems like they were going out of their way to be racist. It's not even just like circumstantially racist based on the time period it was in. Like, you you know, you go back and watch the first season of Scooby-Doo and it's like, and that's well after the fact too. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's 1968. Yeah. Uh, But you, you, you walk, it's like every episode is like this episode centers around this racist caricature stereotype. And it's like, it's like, it's not even like accidental or circumstantial or just like cultural insensitivity. It's like there's a writer's room of people being like, how, what's the next fucking foreigner we can skewer in this? Like, it's that, like, it's like overt. Do you think that comes from like almost kind of like a racist echo throughout the culture? Like there's, there's a certain percentage of the American population that was far right Nazi sympathizer sympathizers, right? Like, and some of that media that's created immediately in the wake of the war, is it almost kind of like a wink and a nod to those people? Kind of like we, not virtue signaling signaling or any of these contemporary terms, but almost kind of like, we're not going to not take these racists money. You know what I mean? Is it made to court those people? I don't know. I'm asking. I'm, I'm, I'm. Court them to get their money? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it could be that way. I, I, yeah. I mean, I think for, for Herge specifically, it's twofold. I think it's one, I both land of the Soviets and Tintin in the Congo, but specifically Congo, is him. This is where people like to talk about that he was innocent because he was a young kid. He was like 21. And I think when your father figure tells you these are mindless savages, you maybe aren't wise enough to be like, maybe they're not. Maybe they're people. Maybe they're, you know, humans who have souls as opposed to just like the brunt of jokes. Yeah. Um, and so I think that there is a case to be made for him being kind of manipulated into this. But at the end of the day, it was his pen that drew those horrendously abhorrent images. So I think the buck stops there, Yeah. Um, which is a conversation that we could do a whole episode on in and of itself. But we're here to talk about his Nazi connections, and they will come up soon. They're here. Um, it was around this time. Why that- are there so many songs about Nazis? <laughs> Why are there... So many songs about Hergé being a Nazi. Someday we'll find it. The Nazi connection. <laughs> the lovers, the Davies, and me. <laughs> oh, man. Hi, welcome to Deep Cuts. I'm Kermit the Frog here. And I'm Bane. <laughs> Kermit the Frog here. Today we're going to analyze... Hergé's uh, connections to the Nazi party, okay? I just want to know if there's really any such thing as separating the art from the artist. Uh, Kermit the Frog here. Uh, Piggy, Piggy, uh, I just don't think that Hergé uh, fully understood the horrible racist overtones. But Kermit, his pen drew those horrible racist pictures, so the buck stops there. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> None of this is staying in. <laughs> um, uh, so it was around this time that Hergé landed some publishing deals in France, uh, specifically where 
um, <coughs> a, Casterman, which is like one of the major comics publishers, very old publisher in France. They started publishing collections of um, uh, his comic comics that would appear in, in this newspaper. Um, also, uh, I feel like we also just need to point out that the way that the Fran- the Franco-Belgian system of comics works is because it's not descendant from gangsters like it is here in the States. Um, because National Publishing, which later became DC Comics, literally started as a um, as a rum running uh, money laundering effort. Uh, they just fucked everybody and stole the copyrights to everything, which is why Superman's creators didn't get any money forever in a day, why everybody doesn't own any of their work. Whereas in the Franco-Belgian model, certain publishers are shitty, but by and large the people that make the comics own the work. Um, And it's not tied to the specific newspaper, which is why, as we'll see later on, Hergé is able to take Tintin with him when he leaves, goes different places, which is why he wasn't kind of held ransom to keep Hergé making books at certain junctures in time. Um, And don't, don't like, don't French uh, artists get like government grants mm -hmm. to like work on... Sometimes they do. And also there's a, there's a law in France where... Um, a bandesine cannot be sold for less than twenty, the equivalent of twenty dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning that you know you can't have like bargain basement clean out sales until X amount of time after the initial publication date. Basically, to ensure that artists are able to continue to make the work. Um, and the way they produce them is different too. They produce like a typical bandesine is like forty eight pages oversized and a hardcover so it's almost like two single issues over here that get put out almost kind of once a year so the artists are really like they're allowed time to make their best work as opposed to over here where it's just like a fuck it turn it out yeah that's i mean that and that's what i was gonna say because you know you read some of some french comics like like black sad yeah where it's like you look at those panels and you're just like this like how does a human make this yeah these just like immaculately rendered watercolor paintings yeah and every panel in this comic is just this its own amazing watercolor painting and you're just like how the fuck did they do this how like how long did this take yeah and it's just one person too like over here you know we have like a bullshit factory assembly line method of making comics which comes from the 30s and 40s where you know over there it's usually a writer and an artist and the artist usually does everything um yeah, it's fascinating comparing and contrasting them. When I was over in, in France after we did a convention in England, we just stayed in Europe for a while and went to a, a show in France. Or a, we went to Paris just to hang out for a while. And we were in the, the metro, we were in the subway, and like we walked out and there was a Blade Runner 2049 ad. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Blade Runner 2049 in the subways, that's so neat. And I turned around and there was a giant, like three times the size of that ad poster for... Corto Maltese. And I was like, fucking comics ads in the subway. What is happening? I was like over the moon. It was great. We were like walking around just like in the, you know, in Paris. And there'd be like big like turnstile uh, kind of the equivalent of like a billboard with various like, look at these comics that are coming out soon. And like. Yeah, yeah I'm fascinated by cultures where movies aren't the biggest pop culture Mm-hmm. Uh, pivot point mm-hmm. uh, because it's just you know it's just such a fundamentally different uh, way of interpreting the world I guess yeah yeah um, I agree you know like France or Japan obviously where the, the the anime is almost like an afterthought to the to the manga yeah yeah 
I don't know if I would go that far, but yeah, they're those are the dominant forms of uh, media as opposed to live action film, which is like almost not even an industry over there. Yeah. I mean, obviously they make them, but it's not like over here where it's two hundred million dollars. Yeah. Like we just, you know, we did an episode about the uh, message from space, which at the time it was made in 1978 was the most expensive movie in Japanese history. And the budget was five million dollars. <laughs> like, you know, to us, that's just a drop in the bucket, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's fascinating. Um, uh, oh, look at this. I even have a little description of Bendisine and uh, what it translates to. So if you're unfamiliar, Bendisine, uh roughly translates to drawn strips that's another thing that's really fascinating to me is like the different names that comics have across the world, like manga or fumetti, or I'm sure there's more that I'm just not thinking of. Reedy um, Reedy box books. Reedy Reedy box books. Big fan of Reedy Reedy box books. But like fumetti, it roughly translates in Italian to like wisps of smoke because they think that like word balloons and the tails look like somebody smoking a cigarette. Um, yeah, it's 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 fascinating to me. Um, yeah, I don't know. Very. This is the this is this is the stuff I stay up at night thinking about because I'm cool. Yeah. I, I just love how the the uh, the people of Mesopotamia respect the uh, Reedy Reedy Box Books artists. Yeah, the pharaohs had his own Reedy Reedy Box Book guy who would like carve his own comics onto walls. Yeah, where you know the the cavemen in France, the caves of Lascaux. You know, where they were making Reedy Reedy box books with charcoal on the cave walls. Mm-hmm. Or what's the Italian guy? Uh, da Vinci or something? Me, me, Colangelo? I don't remember his name. The guy did the, uh, the, oh, fuck. I fucked up this joke. What the shit is his name? Sistine Chapel. Sistine Chapel. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Sistine Chapel legit is a fucking comic. Like, there's giant It's panels. one of the greatest Reedy Reedy, Reedy box books it's a re- it's a It's time. a Reedy Reedy box book it was a VR experience. You can go yeah. in there and stand and look at the panels on the walls, and the panels progressively tell a story. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, I love reading reading box books. Me too. Me three. Uh, yeah, uh, Congo sucks. Erge has some racist stuff. It's not. Oh, good. I was gonna say yeah. I mean, was it wasn't Bruce Campbell's finest moment? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, the book is just one giant white savior thing. It's really offensive. Um, but now. I don't want to be misinterpreted as defending that or saying that I don't agree with that. But I was thinking about it, like looking through this and kind of reading this is like, I feel like sometimes, and this is just an issue with like lack of diversity in storytelling, but like, is there some argument to be made for the fact that like, if your care, if your main character is white, uh, just by nature of the fact that it's the main character, they're just going to come off as a white savior if they interact with any other culture, because obviously you're going to make your main character the hero, and they're going to be the one that well, the issue, fixes things. yeah, but the issue with that is that the well, there's multiple points there. One specifically, Tintin in the Congo, Tintin like goes to the Congo and just basically calls people savages for the entire book and teaches them dumb shit like how to drink water, like. I don't think he literally does that, but it's, I mean, it's super offensive. Yeah. Um, the issue at hand, though, and the way that the reason the term white savior exists is because of a structurally white supremacist system, right? We, like, the the thing that you said, which is the most innocent version of the uh, narrative at hand is, well, I'm just telling a story about a character who's white who goes to another place where people aren't white and then interacts with them, where the <coughs> underlying structural racism is that that co-ops 
the narratives of said people from other cultures. Yeah. As opposed to ta- setting a movie in that culture starring those people, you have a white point of view character who inevitably has some sort of arc and who, because they're the protagonist and the thrust of the story, learns a lesson and teaches people something. Because that's generally what happens in stories, but typically speaking in white savior narratives, the character who is the protagonist, who in air quotes happens to be white, but is also white because of the structural racism surrounding white privilege learns and teaches people a le- teaches people how to be better you know like mm-hmm. because of the necessities surrounding narrative uh and dramatic tension like it's 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 bullshit but it exists it's initially i think it ex- existed in a benign state but it's now it's just criminal neglect almost yeah. does, that, does that make sense what i'm saying mm-hmm yeah, I was just wondering because I mean, some some examples are just you know I feel like the Last Samurai or what are some other examples of like Dances with Wolves, Dances with Wolves, The Substitute. <clears throat> yeah, oh yeah, or all those inner city. Yeah, like those yeah. those ones. You know, they have a they have a very like specific um, dynamic to them where it's like there are these group of people that all happen to be something, whether it's a culture or just like a bunch of black kids so, or in, a socioeconomic in the projects class or whatever. Or, yeah. Um, and it's like they are just incapable of um, taking care of themselves or being successful um, or being civil yeah. uh, on their own. And then uh, the, the, the white person comes in and like them being white is like sort of structurally tied to why they're able to solve their problems for them. So yeah. it's like, oh, I'm a Yale educated teacher who, yeah. you know, who sacrifice my career to come teach at this inner city school those things like they 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 have like this very specific um structural um white savior complex where it's like even down to like the the dynamic of the jokes of the thing where it's like oh like i don't know about all that reading stuff yeah and then and, and then the teacher's like actually it's I do not know about that reading thing or whatever. It's like it's just it, the well, yeah. The the scene is the scene is always like you know they're reading Shakespeare or something, and the, there's a a character of color that's like, man, I don't understand these words. And then the characters like the the white character like breaks it down for them, and yeah. then they all really get into Hamlet or whatever you know, or they get really yeah, or they say like. Hamlet was basically a gangster, and then yeah. they're just like, oh. "Oh, you've reframed the narrative me for me, so I can understand it in my own urban way." Yeah, it's awful. Yeah, so so then there's, so there's that, and you explained it, so I, I didn't really fully realize or remember that that like that is kind of what the Congo is like. But uh, I was just kind of thinking of of the idea that like you know, for all intents and purposes, Tintin is just kind of like a kid who travels around and interacts with the different people and societies and cultures and well i think there is there i mean on this subject of white savior dumb and like encroaching into spaces that are typically not caucasian adventure stories in general are kind of set up to be colonialist yeah just they just are i guess that's kind of what i was trying to say is like how you know it how can you avoid that in a story like this other than just like the main character being black instead of white, which is but totally even, something that should happen. But yes, in the, but even so, then it's still <clears throat> it's still colonialist in a certain. Yeah, because it's an, he's he's an American or he's a of course. French. Yes. Yeah. Person or whatever. whatever. Yeah. yeah. Whereas, it, you know, and honestly, I don't I don't know the correct answer for that. I mean, it's something that I'm definitely keenly aware of, considering I've spent the last year making an adventure comic. Yeah, I, I uh, but that is that is something I think a lot about, you know, um, and I love adventure comics. 
but uh, and adventure stories in general. But it is it's kind of part and parcel to the genre, and I I don't have a good solution for how to get around it. In my work, the way I've done it is like just to expressly state that like whatever nation state government whatever thing has hired insert archaeological team or research development team or whatever the reason is they're going in is because the country itself needs some specific minutia expertise that our team has you know so it's almost kind of like an intercontinental group of adventurers as opposed to a single powerful usually anglo nation going into a usually non-anglo nation does that make sense yeah yeah. And I don't even know if that solves the issue. I really don't. Um, but I wanted to make like a weird Johnny Quest comic. So this, that was the solution I arrived at. Yeah. Adventure is inherently problematic because... Did we just... There should never be any... There's technically the idea of just going to a different place and like discovering something is sort of like the country's original sin. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Oh, boy. <laughs> So after Tintin and Congo sells a shitload and Belgian people think it's hilarious and they love it and they don't understand why it wouldn't be looked back upon fondly, uh, Tintin in America comes out, which then leads to Tintin in the Orient, which was later changed to the Cigars of the Pharaoh. Um, these are also not great, um, but they move in a somewhat positive direction, but not even really. I'm not even going to try and defend them. Like, they're really... Like, Tintin in America is really bizarre. I don't know when the last time you read it, but it's fucking weird. Like, he comes to America to solve a mystery, but Native Americans or indigenous people, uh, cowboys, and 1930s gangsters all exist at the same time. And it's not like cowboys of, like, modern-day people who are herding cattle. Like, it's like, yeehaw! Let's rob a train! Like, it's like he saw two movies, and one of them was, like, the original Scarface, and the other was, you know, some sort of, you know, wagon train west or, you know, style movie. And he made a book with about that because he didn't understand that American culture wasn't Cowboys and Indians and, and you know, rum running. Yeah, I mean, that that the sensibility of that immediately sticks out to us as strange and anachronistic because that's our culture. Yeah. Uh, but it's the same as, you know, in, in, in movies or books or tv shows or whatever when somebody like goes to africa and people are like living in huts and things like that and it's like that's not how it is there they're just they they live in houses and they wear regular clothes yeah and there are some tribes and communities that kind of live in that way or whatever but it's the it's the equivalent of like amish people or whatever like like they're just normal people yeah they're not they're not like people with like running around naked with like body paint like that. yeah I mean and that's and I think that's again uh, like a, a perfect example of it I think this time period of Hergé's career can be basically summed up as like criminal negligence you know like the Norbert Wallace influence aside which I think is significant and worthy of debate so much of Hergé's early career is just him kind of like not knowing better and not really putting the time or effort into reading a Wikipedia article. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously that didn't exist in the 40s, but you know what I mean. Like, the, the equivalent of just, like, who do I know from America? Uh, hey, are, like, wagon train thefts still a thing in 1935? You know? Like, yeah. around this time, like, this is where Tintin kind of really, like, takes off, and, like, the, the Casterman volumes start really selling, and 
Tintin becomes something of an international success, um, which is bizarre because he's now the the character is kind of built on the back of this xenophobia, right? It, the success of the character is almost predicated on Hergé's kind of dog whistle racism, uh, which is interesting because that aside from Land of the Soviets and in the Congo, both of which aren't reprinted anymore. Like the Tintin estate is just kind of like, those didn't happen. Don't pay attention to them. I don't feel like that history gets spoken of often. Like, I feel like it's just kind of like, he's a beloved kid that, you know, uh, Belgian kids loved and somehow he broke out and now everybody across the world loves him. And his backstory is kind of darker than that, which I think is sad and interesting. Um, Also, I mean, I know he was young, but like, just so far in this story, like, was Hergé just, like, a really impressionable person that was just, like, a com- like a social chameleon that would just latch on to whoever was around him? It kind of seems like that, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, especially going forward as we see his political views wax and wane, depending on who's in his life. I don't know. I It really seems like... I will say that I think he's a very sensitive person. Like, there's an interview with him where when he talks about getting divorced from his first wife, who we're about to talk about, um, there's there's a really good documentary about him. If you haven't seen it, it's called uh, Hergé and Me. And it's a French documentary where this kid who was a reporter for his school newspaper at like 17 went and interviewed Hergé for like 10 hours or something crazy. And he cut it into a documentary as an adult. Like he lost the footage or, you know, forgot about it. And then as a like 40-something-year-old man found all of these old recordings and was like, whoa, these need to be made into a movie. And so he made a movie about this time, these like this three days or whatever that he spent interviewing Hergé. And it was fairly recently after Hergé had gotten divorced from his first wife. And in the interviews, Hergé talks about Tintin in Tibet. Um, The high concept of Tintin in Tibet is Tintin goes to Tibet to try and find um, his best friend, Chang, who's based on a person that Hergé knew in real life. And in this story, Chang goes missing. So Tintin has to go find him. And they think that he's been kidnapped by the Yeti. And so a lot of it is like Haddock and Tintin like traipsing around in the, you know, Tibetan Alps uh, in the snow. And in the interview for it, Hergé talks about how during that time period, uh, he felt corroded. He felt corrupted. He felt like nothing good would ever come from him again. And he just yearned for purity. And that's why he wanted to draw snow. And he just wanted to draw barren wastelands that had no hum that were untouched by humans because he felt like both everyone in his life and he himself were frail and kind of broken beyond repair, um, which is really fascinating because that seems like someone who's deeply analytical and who's really thinking about what they're putting down on paper. And yet all of the stuff in his early career is like just seems like it's made by a fucking bozo yeah and also going back to like the social chameleon like glomming on to whoever is in your vicinity thing in the documentary uh as he's interviewing him Hergé is just basically like i'm telling you things that i've never told anybody like i just i just feel like i trust you and the 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 guy like in the narration is like i don't know why he was saying that like we were just we literally just met and i was just some random kid and for some reason he was like, felt like he wanted to confide in me things that he'd never told anybody else. And it was just so strange to me. Yeah. It makes me wonder if that kid at the time had like a Tintin haircut. Because he's so drawn to that haircut. Like, we'll get to it later, but there are multiple people in his life who have the little like pompadour thing. Like multiple people. Yeah, you and him would 
Dude, we we would get on like uh, two birds of a feather. Yeah. Yeah, what's up? But the real question is, which comes first, Davy Bakes or Tintin, you know? Like, would I be who I am without the little RJ, whoop? I don't know. Yeah, if it wasn't for Tintin, you'd just be sitting here in a suit. Maybe I'd have a mullet. And I don't know. With a Caesar haircut from the fucking 90s, <laughs> the <laughs> yeah, George yeah. Clooney thing, and you'd be like... Uh, yes, the, uh, over the data projections for Q4, I'd mean, be doing like a financial podcast Dow, right now. Dow Jones, Nasdaqs <laughs> are down and up at the same time, which is unexpected this quarter. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, but at this point in the story, I'd still be exactly the same, Yeah, but I, and we'd still be friends, but you would yeah. just be obsessed with stock markets Yeah, and I would still be doing the podcast with you. <laughs> I'm flattered by that. You're a good friend. Um, so it's around this time that Hergé meets his first wife. Um, her name was Germani Kikiens. Kikiens? I don't know how to fucking pronounce that. Um, and, you know, go figure. Guess who introduced them? Old dirty Norbit Wallez. Um, she was, in fact, his secretary. And, um, you know, don't get, your, don't get your hopes up that she's going to help educate our boy and, you know, help him make you know, more informed, non-crazy, bigoted uh, decisions uh, because she's a very conservative person too. She was the secretary at a fucking Nazi Catholic newspaper. So, yeah. That's my specific kink. <laughs> you and me both. Uh, probably for the same reason. So at this point, Tintin is just a cash cow. It's just a license to print money. And when he announced his next book, you know, where Tintin was going, the subject matter of his next book, it was basically kind of, you know, international news, you know. He and he had announced that Tintin would be going to China in his next book. Um, and a lot of people immediately were like, oh, maybe, are you sure? Please don't depict this as offensively as you've done the last couple. Um, in fact, a, a Catholic priest, Father Gossett, um, who was... It's like when the, uh, the Game of Thrones guys were like, we're doing a show about like, what if the South won? And people were like... Uh, no. no, no. But we got two black people writing it. Yeah. No. 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 Uh, so anyway, the, this Catholic priest that's living and working as a chaplain in a uh, Chinese uh, to Chinese students at the University of Louvain, um, uh wrote to Hergé and basically like asked him to do research on the project. You know, he was just like, please depict Chinese culture accurately, do the people justice, like, you have a responsibility, like, don't phone this the fuck in like you did the last four times. Also, during this time period, Norbert Wallace is removed as the, like, editor-in-chief of the 20th century. He's kind of, you know, the Catholic Church takes him out of there and gives him a position overseeing the the kind of restoration and preservation of the ruins at Arloon Abbey. I don't know the, how to pronounce that former church, but it's a very famous abbey that the Catholic Church wanted to make sure didn't get destroyed. Um, and so Norbert Wallace is, you know, basically removed from Hergé's life overnight, and this kind of, you know, throws everything into a into a, a panic for him. He's kind of like, how the fuck am I supposed to live without my crazy fucking Nazi Catholic priest daddy telling me what to do? Um, and so he tries to quit the 20th century. Uh, he tries to leave. And, um, you know, you'd think that, you know, not being a co-worker with a horrible piece of shit would have been a good thing. But at that point, Erge was full-on Stockholm Syndrome, baby, full-on. Yep. Um, so he, he tried to get out. And they, they offered to pay him uh, more money per page and give him longer time to make the pages, like increased deadline flexibility. And he finally was just like, ah, all right, fuck it, I'll stay. Um so Father Gossett introduced Hergé to this dude, 
uh, Zhang Chongren. That we're gonna go with it, man. This episode is just ruthless on yeah these these names. These names are impenetrable. Yeah, for my for my white tongue. I am not going to touch that, but yes, I am also... What's wrong with that? <laughs> that sounds that sounds weird. I don't know why, but yeah. Uh, yeah, then... The, so he introduces him to a dude named Zhang, who's an art student at the Brussels Academy of Royal... Royal des Bois Arts. Uh, and Zhang basically is kind of the anti-Wallace for a while. He, he really turns Hergé's life around. And honestly, you could... You could make a case that without Zhang being in Erge's life, we probably wouldn't know him. Like he's like that. He's like that black guy uh, who does laundry with Edward Norton in American History X. Where he's like, "I'm a Nazi," and then he's like, "Oh, this guy's cool." I guess I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so Zhang, I mean, he to say that Zhang kind of like hard reboots the Tintin comics is pretty accurate like he 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 teaches Hergé about three-point perspective um, like he literally like teaches him re-teaches him how to draw he teaches him about three-point perspective uh he exposes him to new worldviews, um and he kind of serves honestly as like an assistant which is a nice way of saying it really he's a ghost artist he's a ghost artist on i mean this is so this is so crazy this is like the equivalent of if like after Steven Spielberg made Jaws, E.T., and Close Encounters, he, like, befriended some random dude and, like, he taught him how to do dolly shots. Yeah. Yeah, isn't it? And he's like, holy shit. Yeah, yeah. He just, like, exposed been I could have been doing this? Yeah. But but it's but, <clears throat> but even more so than that, it's like if that guy had then co-directed Close Encounters. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, and Zhang doesn't ever get any credit. He doesn't ever get mentioned. It's not like he ever received official credit but like one of the things that's so touted and lauded about blue lotus which is the comic that this section will eventually you know we'll get into it but that's what it's originally what it will eventually become called the thing that's so impressive about it is that there's you know whole massive street scenes where everything is like accurate and photo referenced and there's actual like chinese calligraphy on the walls and there's characters that have idiosyncratic faces that look like real people because they were literally photos that Zhang had brought from China with him. Like, and and that's another thing. It's like, Zhang was basically like, hey, Hergé, have you ever used photo reference? Crazy. What a novelty. And Hergé was like, <laughs> oh, no, I have not done this. Oh, I will do this right now. I mean, he, Belgian people don't have a French accent. I don't know why I did that. But you know what I mean? Like, he, it's just like mind-blowing. Cut and, to that weird footage of Hergé, like fake walking in place and then striking a pose and then it shows like the drawing he did of it and yeah. then walking in place and striking another pose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's... I mean, ev- basically everything that Zhang taught Eje during this time period, both from like the way you collaborate with people to just kind of like the approach to being an empathetic person to a placing a value on photorealism or or you know well-researched well-developed background information all of those aspects are gonna be extremely formative in Hergé Studios which is the production company that Hergé is gonna make later in life like it's basically like he took his friendship with Zhang and turned it into a business model like it's nuts I mean, not only that, but he, but Zhang also taught Hergé about Taoism. He taught him about, um, you know, a bunch of Chinese artists that 
he had never that Edge had never heard of, and like his drawings just get immeasurably better because of it. He taught him how to write in calligraphy. He he they, they worked on the fucking pages together. Like it's nuts. And also because of all of these things, he kind of helped dispel some of the myths or some of the um, some of the propaganda, to put it politely, that Wallace had in embedded in Hergé's mind, right? He mm-hmm. helped him kind of grow as a person, become a little bit more left-leaning, helped him see maybe that he hadn't done so well as a younger man, which I think is, there's two ways of looking at this, right? I think there's one way, which is just like, Hergé is a fucking clown, and like, whoever he's nearest to, he just like, takes their characteristics. And then there's the way I choose to look at it, which is that comics is the greatest communication um, tool in the history of mankind and it brings people together from disparate walks of life and it's the greatest art form ever created and through it you can wield it for truth justice in the you know model citizens way or you can use it for ill and Hergé realized that he was using it for ill and comics as a medium brought this man Zhang who's a very different man than Hergé um, literally born across the globe, which in 1930, that's a real impediment to becoming friends with somebody. Now you can be friends with people in China and it doesn't fucking matter. You can Skype, whatever. But like, homie took a boat for a long time to go to school in Belgium. And like, that's a serious level of commitment to his craft. And and he impacted the world on a global scale by befriending somebody and being like, hey, bro, you're being kind of shitty. Maybe be less shitty. Like just that approach to things made so many people's worldview better, you know? Like, specifically because The Blue Lotus is amazing. It's so good. If you don't know, uh, the book uh, dealt with the Japanese invasion of Manchuria, which was a uh, highly taboo subject of the time. Um, it, you know, it basically follows uh, that Japan invaded China in 1931, and they would eventually set up a puppet country called uh, Manchuko. Uh, which was, you just didn't talk about it in the 1930s. Like, you just didn't, period. Like, they didn't want people outside of the altercation to know. No mainstream media covered it. It just, they just didn't speak about it. So, uh, Manchuko, uh, or is it Man, yeah, Manchuko? Yeah, I've never heard anybody say that outside, out loud either. Uh, Manchuko doesn't exist today. It only existed um, for like about a decade um, until the Soviet Union and Mongolia overtook the province in 1945. Um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the character arc, the character arc of going from like, you know, these savages are stupid jokes in Tintin in the Congo to, you know, Tintin goes full Anderson Cooper was substantial, right? I mean, that's a bit of a, a hard turn. The early, now the early, uh, Tintin books are the equivalent of his like embarrassing Zanga posts from, <laughs> from high school. Yeah, kind of, except the worst part is that he kind of veers back into that. So it's like he he figured out some stuff and then was just like, actually, you know what? Bigotry feels good. Well, I mean, to further my my me- metaphor, you know, I, th- I think uh, some people who aren't as enlightened, they sort of revert back to a more childlike state when they get older where you see, you mm-hmm. know, people in their 40s and 50s who, uh, you know, post embarrassing shit on Facebook. Yeah, they just don't understand how things work. Yeah. Know? Yeah, I mean, it, I think that the, the thing that's so <coughs> crazy about this, though, is that while the first four or so Tintin stories were well-received, you know, 
in air quotes, well-received, meaning they made money, right? They made money. Kids liked them because they didn't understand the bigotry inherent in it. Um, the, the, the only one from this time period that's currently kind of looked back on as an air quotes masterpiece is the Blue Lotus. And like, that's, I, I, I just can't overstate how crazy it is that Zhang just gave this dude a career and nobody talks about him. Like, it's nuts. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost the equivalent of like a Bill Finger, Bob Kane thing, where it's just like, Zhang co-drew that book. He taught Hergé everything he knows, almost literally. Like, I mean, I'm not to, trying to be shitty, but just those, those first three or four books, they look like garbage. Like, they're really bad looking, especially in the land of the Soviets. Like, it's like he drew it with his left hand. I mean, he was like 18, but still, like, I just can't get over that people don't talk about this dude more. Like, he's such a vital figure in the history of comics and also specifically Hergé's career. Um, uh, so, you know, now we're, you know, during the during the lead up to World War II, um, Hergé puts out two more books, uh, The Broken Ear and The Black Island, um, both of which are kind of critically panned. They're kind of deemed as ambitionless and simplistic and, you know, this left a lot of people, like, scratching their heads. Like, why did Hergé give up after achieving such heights of the Blue Lotus? Well, you know, I think there's multiple ways you can spin this. But I think the main one is that our boy Zhang moved back to China after graduating. Uh, and also there were, you know, socio-political tensions surrounding this time period, obviously. Um, they were the scorpion to the Blue Lotus's views. I don't get that joke, but yes. Uh, Drake. Oh, right. Scorpion. Oh, views. Yes. Yes. Yeah, they were. Um, do people hate Scorpion as much? Yeah, I think it's regarded as kind of like, it's just like a double album of like mostly filler and mm. a very disappointing follow up to uh, views. Interesting. I don't think I was aware that people, I think I'm middle of the road. I like parts of view, uh, Scorpion a lot. And then I think I also just, I know people that love views. I don't really like that record that much because I had such high expectations. And I think that's that that record is like four songs too long. Like if you took out a couple of those like Islander songs at the end or the Caribbean influence stuff at the end, I think the record would be a lot stronger. I really like views, but I guess I was more saying because what you're saying, some a lot of people have that same thought um, where they think that views isn't that good. Uh, but I was more just referring to it's sort of the follow up commercial yeah. success. Yes, absolutely. Because yeah. um, views was like hugely it was like went like it's like it's his first platinum yeah record yeah um so you know zhang moves back to china and uh and it's you know erjay's kind of at a crossroads right he's kind of like how do i fucking keep doing this and that's when things get you know even worse and basically the entire world gets set on fire belgium gets invaded by the nazis erjay and his wife uh flee to france um which was a pretty common plan for a lot of Belgians at the time. Like tens of thousands of people did the same. Uh, Hergé originally found refuge in Paris uh, for I think it was like three weeks or so. And then he moved to uh, Pieux-Dôme-Dôme. I don't, I don't know how to pronounce that city. Uh, but they lived there for I think like four to six weeks. Um, Pied-de-Dôme? Pied-de-Dôme? Sure, let's go with that. So on May 28th, 1940, the Belgian king, Leopold III, who, by the way, side note, is like regarded as one of the worst leaders in Belgian history. Uh, I have a co-worker who uh, is European and, and he like shit talks this dude even now. Like it's really funny to me. We're like 80 years removed and he's just like fucking Leopold the third. I fucking hate that guy. <laughs> um, 
So uh, Leopold III was basically like, I'm going to surrender Belgium to Belgium to the Nazis. Um, but as part of the deal, I want all of the Belgian expats to come back to the country. And bizarrely, everybody kind of was just like, okay, that's a cool idea. So Hergé and his wife and many, many, many of the people who have fled the country came back and they kind of like, they did it as a sign of A, respect for the king, but B, almost like they 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 went home to stop the bloodshed. That's kind of the, that was the offer kind of that was on the table. Um, <clears throat> when Ajay get, gets back to, to Belgium, he discovers that his house is actually being used by a Nazi officer, like a fucking SS propaganda dude. It's just like sleeping in his house, using his his bowls, washing his hands in the sink. It's pretty weird to think about. It's a real odd couple situation. Yeah. Although with Hergé's like far right leanings, I, it's so interesting to me that he's just kind of like, because I think, I feel like that's a, your support structure is taken away. Your best friend leaves to move to China. Your father figure, daddy Nazi, still probably looming emo- over you emotionally. And the Nazis who Catholic daddy has been telling you are awesome this entire time are like, hey, bro, what's up? I feel like it would be pretty easy to just be like, all right, cool, what's up? I'm a Nazi now. (laughs) I mean, I'm not saying I condone that. They were murdering people. They were exterminating people. But it's it's interesting where his kind of like, I'm going to relent to this and I'm going to rebel against that lines are. They they feel bizarrely arbitrary to me. Um, Well, it's like whenever you're in elementary school and you you have your circle of friends who you're all outcasts and then like you just barely make it over the hump and one of the more popular or mid-tier kids wants to be friends with you, but then you're the only one that they accept and they they hate the other kids. So you're like secretly hanging out with these guys and then you hang out with those guys. But when you have that crux moment where you, the three, the two paths intersect and then you have to like make that choice and you have to be, you have to make that split second decision of, am I going to make fun of these kids like to look cool in front of the other kids or am I going to reveal that these are my friends? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It's, it's an apt analogy. And by that, I mean, uh, people are definitely being exterminated in high schools. Yeah. So those decisions are definitely the same. Mm -hmm. Um, so Hergé's paper, the little 20th gets shut down. Right. The Nazis are just like, fuck this, not doing it anymore. So Hergé needs work. And he also at this point owed the government a shitload of money in back taxes. And uh, he gets offered a job by La Paz Real, another far right kind of Catholic newspaper um, that is affiliated with the Rexist Party, which was a Nazi offshoot in Belgium, which the name Rexist comes from uh, uh a combination of Christus Rex, the Latin for Christus King. Mm. Um, and they were really, really excited about loving Jesus and hating everybody else. Um, so the leader, Leon de, de, de Grel, we're going to, man, these names, they're just fucking me up today. Uh, Leon de Grel is the party leader, and uh, he was actually a longtime friend of Hergé's. Uh, the two knew each other because they were both reporters when they were in their 20s. Um and this is also an interesting factoid. So when I referenced earlier that Hergé loved the, the poofy front hairdo, this guy, Leon de Grel, had that hairdo. To make things even weirder, he was a boy reporter. To make things even re- weirder, there's an urban legend slash conspiracy that Tintin is based on Leon de Grel. But so there are basically like these conflicting reports of like, was, and there's, there's just so many data points about Hergé being a shitty right-wing Nazi-affiliated dude. Like, the fact that he knew the leader of the fucking Rexist party 
as a, as kids. The fact that he worked at a Catholic, you know, Nazi aligned newspaper as since he was a young man. The fact that his dad was this not dad, his spiritual dad was this weird Nazi Catholic priest. Like there's just so many of these data points that you just it just really colors the work. You know what I mean? Like you want to be able to evaluate, you know, the separation of the art versus the artist, but oof. I mean, I we can get into that later of whether or not I can enjoy the comics without thinking about these things, but it is once you know some of this stuff, it it at the very least becomes a part of the narrative. Whether you let it overwhelm it or not, it, it has to be discussed, I feel like. Um, and uh, so at this point, you know, he he turns down the offer from um, from La Paz Real. He, he doesn't want to do it. He's like, it's, it's too much. And there's also conflicting reports on that, too, of whether he was actually officially offered it or if they were just at dinner and... Uh, fucking uh degrell was like would you ever consider doing this it's it again because you know it's the 1940s records weren't what they are now there's a lot of kind of back and forth but the kind of consensus is that he got an offer and he probably turned it down but the end of the story is that he didn't end up working for degrell at, at la paz real so then a francophone paper la soie the french newspaper um they offers they offer him a deal they're like we'll publish tintin and he accepts it primarily because in all reality, it's a really big coup for him. Like he gets a massive uptick in readers. L'Issois is a massive newspaper in France at the time. Um, and he roughly probably has a weekly readership of about 600,000 people, which is, I think, like three times the amount of readers that he originally had. And for them, he makes the golden, uh, the crab with the golden claws. Which, which is which is where... The cartoon mm-hmm. starts, mm-hmm. and the movie is like the live action or the the CG movie. The, yeah, isn't isn't no that one's uh, that one's based on Red Rackham's treasure, the tri- okay. the trilogy. Yeah, um, but the, the first like story arc of the cartoon is the is crab the, crab. the go- yeah. yes, yeah. Um, and you know he's basically just like, haha, fuck you, Nazis! I did it! I escaped! I'm not gonna contribute to the, your hateful xenophobia! And then the Nazis invade France and they seize control of Lassois. And uh, it reminds me of uh, when Alan Moore was working for Jim Lee's company and then it was Storm. bought by DC. <laughs> yeah, it's the same. It's the same shit, just on a much darker scale because nobody was really dying in uh, in the whole. Yeah, I that's a whole we could do a whole episode on that, man. That that whole scenario with with Jim selling Wildstorm is just so bizarrely complicated and weird. And poor Alan Moore, man. Poor Alan fucking Moore. Uh, but he basically, he's like, I did it. I escaped. Lassois, let's do this. And then Nazis invade. They take over Lassois and they, they basically, they keep the, 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 the paper is too big for them to shut down without kind of a, they wanted the money from the paper. And also they realized it was a huge propaganda tool that they could use. So they just completely rebooted the magazine, which is a fairly middle of the road to left-leaning magazine. Um, and they rebooted it as a pro-corporation, pro-Catholic, anti-Jew magazine um, because of Nazis. And how does Hergé handle this? Does he rage quit? Does he say, not today, Satan? No, he stays there. And this is the main point that everyone makes when discussing, was he a Nazi collaborator? Um, you know, for all of him trying to do better, for all of him trying to, you know, rebel against these far-right attributes in his life and professionally, he takes Nazi money. Uh, he got a job. 
that was, you know, in a little other, literal other country to try and get away from the Nazis, and it didn't work. Um, the Nazis just took over the paper, and they were like, you got to keep doing it. So he keep he kept publishing uh, uh, Tintin there, um, and he made the strips under Nazi supervision. He had multiple editors who were Nazi uh, collaborators. Um, I don't know for sure if he had literal Nazi officers that he was dealing with, but he was definitely dealing with new editors that were installed that were specifically Nazi-leaning, like they were trying to make a singular vision for the new paper. Um, so, you know, Tintin's adventures at this time, they they kind of diverge, right? The I don't remember if you, the last time you read the Claws of the, uh, the, the Crab with the Golden Claws, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty weird kind of simple story, but it's also like the main villain is an American businessman who's jewish yeah who has a giant hook nose and like curly hair and it's like which is not changed much for the cartoon no it's really not it's because they're they're the cartoon is trying so slavishly to emulate his way of drawing that they sometimes miss the forest for the trees where you're like ah guys really really should we do this yeah and also that the storytelling in that one like i mean not to be mean but like you can feel Zhang's absence in these the, la- the three books after Blue Lotus. Like, the a lot of the storytelling in Crab with the Golden Claws fucking sucks. Like, it's all just, like, weird sight gags and, like, grids of Hergé in a long shot, or a Tintin in a long shot kind of just, like, walking around. Mm-hmm. And the backgrounds are just, like, a plane and a plane. They're not, there's no, like, shelves or interesting things in rooms. They're just kind of, like, boxes that he's walking in. It's really... It's not. It's not very good. <laughs> um, later in life, Erge would say that you know during this time period he had no ill intention behind the drawings. But come on, that can't be true. Erge had seemingly learned a lesson surrounding bigotry and racism. But you know, Zhang wasn't in his life anymore, and uh, all those lessons just seemed to go out the window. Um, and now we get to the most complicated part of Erge's legacy. His work gets amazing the legacy building career defining amazing moments are about to happen he it was around here that Hergé would begin overseeing colorist reprints of his previous books and collaborating with artists like edgar j edgar p jacobs a name i can say and alice devos another name i can say uh they basically were both brought on to initially help him color the old volumes but as they all kind of like worked in the studio together, they worked, a, they formed a really um, interesting collaborative relationship. And I think Hergé managed to kind of supplant the the place that Zhang served for him in terms of being an assistant, cleaning up pages, making drawings that weren't bad, good, making drawings that weren't good, great, making drawings that were great, amazing. Because I feel like, you know, even though at this point Hergé can draw, he's still... He's not in it maybe because his life is being run by Nazis, but he's not in it for the love of the craft. He's in it because he is getting paid mm-hmm. and he has bills and he has a wife and he has responsibilities and it's a job. And you can sell, tell in those three books, four books, whatever it is, that he's there to cash some checks. But when these two other artists, you know, Edgar Jacobs and Alice DeVos come in, they really, they elevate the work again. They're like his assistants, so they don't get any credit, which is bullshit. Like, it's not like... You know, written and drawn by Hergé, additional drawings by Edgar P. Jacobs and Alice DeVos or whatever. Like, their names just aren't on the strips, period. Which has been a massive problem throughout comics history in general. Um, 
And, you know, it's the work just gets amazing. There's a trilogy of books that are produced around this time, uh, Secret of the Unicorn, Red Rackham's Treasure, and The Seven Golden Balls. And they all are this kind of like pirate ship underground or underwater mystery, you know, uh, there's a... A relative oh, Secret of the Unicorn is in the movie. Yes. Yeah. The, the 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 movie is those three books shoved together. Okay. And then also I think the second storyline of the cartoon is Secret of the Unicorn. Yes. Yeah. Um, um so you know, these three books, the it, on, it, I love the later Hergé books. Like my favorite's Flight 714 to Sydney, uh, or 734 to Sydney, whatever the number is. That's my favorite one, primarily because as a kid, I was obsessed with the weird alien stuff in it, and I loved the way Hergé drew guns. And a lot of times, there's not a lot of guns in these stories, but in that one, the pilot, when they go into the weird underground facility, the pilot's got a Tommy gun, and and uh, Tintin has a forty-five, And it just, like, I, I traced those panels over and over and over as a kid. I loved them so much. Um, objectively speaking... That book is fucking weird, but that's probably why I like it so much. Um, the ones that everybody loves are Blue Lotus and then these three. These are the, the three that everyone kind of goes to as the quintessential, if you want a cool, globe-trotting mystery with boy reporter and quirky characters and some humor, but not a lot of really annoying characters like fucking, what's her name, Castafiore. God, I hate that character. Um, you know, there's, these are the three books that everybody refers to. And these are, this time period is kind of referred to as his, you know, second masterpiece, but also they were produced under the supervision of Nazis, like full on. And it's kind of, uh, it, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, the, the, the cartoon was the cartoon done in the nineties or was it in the eighties? Uh, I I definitely watched it in the nineties, but I, you could almost not, you could be produced anywhere in the 70s to the 90s and I would yeah. believe it. Yeah. Uh it's it's interesting. The 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 cartoon is is inter- I, I I liked it when I was a kid. I rewatched it probably like at this point 10 years ago. And it's still 1010, but it's like it's interesting how like cuz I think you you just said like you know how they they slavishly tried to recapture the books and so some that in some ways that meant like things being left in that were just like even in the 90s were just like this is kind of crazy um like i said some i think i feel like some of the characters like borderline on like almost racial caricature ish um also something that i really thought was funny uh re-watching the show a couple years ago um the first uh like story because the, the the show is like serialized and i think that was what i really liked about it when i was a kid because it was not episodic like most shows uh most cartoons were and it wasn't even like even some cartoons that had like continuity between episodes it wasn't even that it was like literally just like here's a story that takes place over like five episodes and then here's another story that takes place over five episodes or whatever the length was um but the funny thing to me uh was in that first story arc which was the crab with the golden claws um it centers around uh you know Tintin uncovering this vast conspiracy of opium being traded uh, in in these crab tins. And opium is just heavily discussed throughout this story arc. You know, it's just, and it's, it's, it's called, it's like, it's on its face referred to as opium and talked about as opium. And the whole thing is just about opium. And they say opium a, a million times. About as many times as you yes. said opium right now. And 
you can you can directly see where there was a backlash to the heavy discussion of drugs in this cartoon for kids to where you can just obviously see where they went back and changed the 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 VO for the next story cuz the next story is uh about uh some character some I forget exactly but the character who goes who's people keep uh sort of like passing out and going to like into like a comatose state and they can't explain it and then they discover that somebody's like basically injecting people with this drug um but they go out of their way to say it's poison <laughs> and like the word poison doesn't make any sense in the mm. context because it's like people being drugged where it like cha- it like knocks them out and puts them into a coma um but they like go out of their way to be like it's poison and then there's even literally this scene where where Tintin goes, the poison. And it was like such an obvious uh, reaction to parents freaking out that the first yeah. five episodes of the yeah. show, they're just talking about opium. Yeah. Um, I also think it's funny uh, in the show. Uh, it, it doesn't come, it's less, I guess because it's sequential art and the lack of movement just sort of doesn't focus on it as much. But in cartoon form, it's kind of hilariously ridiculous how many times Tintin gets bludgeoned over the head. And, Dude, for and real. For <laughs> real. It's like this kid has some fucking brain damage. Yeah. Like he would he would be dead yeah. after I mean, the it's, second time. It's it's Hergé's a lot of things, but a, a great writer is not one of them. He could never figure out how to get Tintin anywhere other than fuck it, knock him out. Like every time. I wanna do a I wanna do a, a parody sketch uh, of Chuchi Wuchi. Where it's like him in his later life and his like early thirties, where he's like dealing with like really bad CTE issues. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And they have to like, there's this huge expose about it, and they have to like regulate the uh, the like journalist uh, industry, like and like create like these protections in the union, where like if a young roving reporter is bludgeoned over the head too many times, he gets all this like he has to be checked out and by a doctor and rehabilitated before he's he's allowed back on the field. Yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. It's kind of like the Venture Brothers Johnny Quest thing where he's just like a crazy drug addict from being put in all these traumatic scenarios as yeah. a kid. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean, you know, the seven crystal balls, Red Rackham's treasure and and Secret of the Unicorn are by far the high the highest point that Hergé ever reaches with the Tintin books. And the fact that these stories were made with a Nazi sitting down the hall signing the checks, well, that part is usually, it's kind of brushed under the rug. I like the part where you're talking about opium. Please put more of the opium in this. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Also more about how the Jews are evil. Yeah. None of these things will ever cause any problems with a children's cartoon from the 90s. This will be great. 50 years from now, people will be talking about the Tintin? I don't think so. Put more xenophobia in it. Yeah, yeah. This is great. This is great. More more timely content. We don't want evergreen content here. We are Nazis. Yeah, yeah. This won't ever confuse an eight-year-old from 1995 no no this is great this is great like so many other artists before him like Eje makes this deal with the devil you know he he takes this Nazi money and he gets what he wants man he he gets his Mount Rushmore defining work but the problem is that shit comes back to bite you in the ass and uh, you know it all just comes crumbling down should have done what uh, Fritz Lang did just bye yep like yo you want me to make propaganda movies I'm defecting to the U.S. I'd be curious to see what would have happened if he had come to the U.S. I don't 
I have no understanding if he would have been able to get a publishing contract that would have allowed him to own the rights. I really don't know. If he had come to the U.S., um, him and Dr. Seuss would have gotten into that Groucho Marx mirror routine. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. They wouldn't have allowed him in. Yeah. And then they would get mixed up and be like, who's who? And then like Dr. Seuss would have started drawing Tintin. I mean, you. And I'm down to read that. Cat in the Hat would have just gotten really racist. <laughs> yeah. Act two, Brandon is a collaborator. As the Allied troops freed Brussels from Nazi rule, the Soie was closed. This happened in this happened on September second, nineteen forty-four. The next day, guess who got arrested as a Nazi collaborator? Our boy Eje. He was named in a document titled "The Gallery of Traitors," which is a really good title, and I want to make a band called "The Gallery of Traitors." Um, to make things even more intense, all the reporters who worked at La Soie and the other Nazis, uh, Nazi-controlled newspapers were legally barred from practicing their craft again, which meant Eje was barred as well. Uh, you know what's kind of scary and sad is that like, even though this was on the heels of one of the most horrific moments in collective history that this is almost like refreshing compared to like how people are being how people like in things that are happening today yeah. are just not being held to the same accountability for things that they are doing slash yeah. did yeah yeah I, yeah i get that um the belgian people didn't look too kindly on herge's whole i was just trying to do the right thing but then the nazis took the paper excuse um the cultural conversation around this reached such a fever pitch that a Belgian newspaper named uh, La Patrie published a satirical parody called The Adventures of Tintin in the Land of Nazis that depicted Hergé wandering around a Nazi death camp. Um, uh, 5,500 people were sentenced to life imprisonment for their Nazi collaborations, which is nuts. Like, I don't have any real understanding of what that means. Like, what level of collaboration gets you life in prison? I don't know. Um, but I'd be very curious to learn that. Um, 25,000 people received serious charges based on the, their actions during the war. Um, for a while after the liberation of Belgium, Hergé just didn't work. He didn't, he didn't have another way of making money, so he just kind of like hung out for a minute. Um, uh, he wasn't allowed to work in any newspapers, obviously, so he couldn't do that. He wasn't allowed to make comics because there were no publishers to print the comics that would work with him because of his said, you know, uh, the prohibition prohibition on him. He got canceled. He got he got fucking canceled, and then because he's a white dude, uncanceled. Yeah. Um. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy that. Uh, I mean, I don't want to jump ahead, but it's crazy that he, the guy who created Ten Ten, almost just got put to death, and he narrowly avoided it. Yeah. Basically, so at you know at this point he is kind of weighing his options. He's like, I could move to France. I could try and work there for a paper. Like I could go somewhere else. Like I I just got to figure out something. And on October, uh, in October of 1945, a solution presented itself. Raymond LeBlanc, the former conservative resistance member who uh, came up to Hergé, uh, came up to Hergé with a proposition. Uh, he wanted to start a new magazine for children that would start with a comic section, section basically. He wanted Hergé to run the, the section both as like the editor-in-chief and also be the main draw and bring Tintin with him. All right, Hergé. I want you to run this magazine, but this time 
no Nazi stuff. <laughs> uh, if yeah. I see one Nazi thing, I swear I'm going to be so angry. <laughs> I don't know what accent you're doing, but I really want there to be that moment in real life. I don't know if it was. I kind of feel like that guy was just like, hey, you basically control our version of Mickey Mouse. I want to sell books. So will Mickey Mouse come hang out with me? And he was like, ah, I can't do it. I can't, I can't work in the papers. They won't let me. Um, he was a pariah, basically. You know, he'd been branded as a collaborator. So LeBlanc took things into his own hands. Uh, if they made a movie of this, though, I would want Matt LeBlanc to play this LeBlanc and for him to only to be credited as LeBlanc so that in the credits it would say Matt LeBlanc as LeBlanc. And, like, everyone would be really confused and not quite understand what would happen. That's what I want. That's my dream. So LeBlanc went to Walter Jean Gansoff van der Meersch. Man, these names. Uh, who was the head of the military tribunal who was trying the Nazis uh, during this, and the Nazi collaborators uh, and their court cases. And LeBlanc petitioned uh, der Meersch and was just like, bro, come on. Erzé's a national treasure. Come on. We got we to gotta let him off. Come on. Um, Erzé was like, his defense was, we were on a break. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And der Meersch replies, in regards to the particular inoffensive character of the drawings published by Remy, bringing him before a war tribunal would be in inappropriate and risky. Which basically, like we just said, is like, uh, he's all good, man. It was just a joke. This level of understanding and empathy was not given to many of Hergé's co-workers. Six journalists that worked at La Soie were put to death, and others handed lengthy sentences for their works of Nazi collaboration. I guess being, you know, a rich white public figure helps you escape by those consequences, you know? Just... Can, you, can you imagine just as a, just being a kid and either reading the comics or just watching that show when it was on Nickelodeon or whatever it was on whenever I watched it, and then just later on finding out that the guy who made that was just, like, executed for being a Nazi? Yeah, and the, 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 the interesting part of that is I don't know how I feel about like was he a nazi collaborator yeah i would say i feel comfortable saying that he took checks that had nazi swastikas on him does he deserve to be put to death for that i really don't know because in certain circumstances if you're a guard at dachau or whatever i don't know if there's anything you can do to expunge that making a comic for a newspaper that was not originally run by nazis that then got taken over by nazis I think it's a weak character moment. It speaks to his character. It's a bad thing. Does do you deserve to die for it? I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I mean, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I, I think there are very few things that any person has the right to decide. Yeah, I mean, I don't. A human being is of going course, to die. I for. personally don't believe in the. I don't believe in the death penalty either. But I'm just saying, at this time, that was a common sentence, and it's crazy to me that. I mean, if if uh, if, if if being an, a Nazi war war criminal. Uh, to the degree of like Joseph Mengele and the ultimate punishment for that is to be put to death. And that's the, yeah, the, the highest yeah. setting. Yeah. Uh, certainly there should be some kind of different punishment for just like being, a pinky. Being, should, he, they should have just like cut off his left pinky being complicit. Yeah. I but mean, you joke, but like not killing him, but like crippling his hands to where he could never draw again. Oh God, kill me. <laughs> no, thanks. Ugh, that's so dark. That's making me like physically feel ill. Like that that episode of that weird like rock and roll reboot of Twilight Zone 
in like the late nineties with that, the episode with Judd Nelson where he like is like a music producer who like has this weird sixth sense for like knowing whenever somebody's going to be big and it always like ends horribly for them. And then at the end he comes home and his daughter's playing piano and he like gets the sixth sense. And then he's like, Oh honey, I dropped my ring. Can you get it out for me? And like he drops it into the garbage disposal and then she walks in and puts her hand in and it ends on the shot of him like starting to flip the switch. That's like, that haunts me. So dark. So dark. I mean, we're basically kind of at the, you know, the end of the story. He he worked for this Nazi newspaper. These books came out. Um, after a low point of him being branded as a collaborator, it's expunged from his record. He's culturally forgiven, goes on to a massive career and starts Hergé Studios, kind of redefines how comics are viewed in a lot of places. Um, makes 24 volumes of Tintin in total, licenses it to to appear as a TV show and a film franchise. There's a, before the CG movie that we made, there's a there's a French version. I think there's two French live action features, and there's a there's a puppet live action or puppet action feature which I've never seen from the 40s. Um, and yeah, it's just nobody talks about the fact that he was a that he worked with the Nazis. Nobody. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like. You know, we've kind of touched on a lot of these themes of, like, separation of art versus the artist and, like, where do you draw the line for supporting someone who may or may not be a complete piece of shit. Um, but I, I just, it's so, I don't know. Were you, because I know that you saying you watched the show in the 90s. Were you, had you read the comics before that? No, I definitely re- didn't read the comics before the show. I read, I saw the show and had no conception mm. that it was a comic or whatever. It was just a show that came on. Um that I liked and I think oddly in some way that I couldn't quite wrap my mind around kind of reminded me of me. Like you were yes. like, it, I was like, if uh, Dave, is that, yeah. does, does that make sense? Davey, is that you? <laughs> we like, uh, like Kylo Ren and Ray, we just like were able to see each other through time. Yeah. Except when we put our hands behind our heads, instead of pulling out a lightsaber, it's like a magnifying glass. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, it, 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 it oddly evoked the similar feelings that, put it in the same hemisphere as like Johnny Quest and yeah. uh, Scooby-Doo and, and the Hardy Boys for yeah. me um, that I just at the time couldn't quite wrap my mind around. And it, it wasn't until later that I, uh, number one, discovered that it was a comic and number two, uh, read the comics, mm. uh, which I think was like getting them from the library. That's how I read them too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I found them through Hardy Boys. My mom knew that I was obsessed with Nancy Drew and she was like, oh, you like Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys? Uh, here, this is another weird boy detective thing. And it just, like, blew my mind. I don't have a particularly good memory, as you know. And uh, multiple of my... We've actually done this whole podcast episode already. This is the fourth it's, time. It's already out. Yeah, this is the fourth time we're doing it. At this point, I'm just humoring you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, multiple of my memories from when I was really little, um, like, I don't have that many just because my memory's kind of bad. But um, multiple memories uh, are of the Tintin books. Like, that's kind of the thing that I remember the most. <laughs> like, I remember where I was when my sister was born because we were reading Tintin. And my aunt was reading it to me. And she was doing a voice of Captain Haddock. and But she couldn't really do it for a prolonged period of time. So she would be like, you know, blue blistering barnacles. And she was saying blue blistering barnacles when the phone rang. She answered the phone and then she was like, all right, it's time to go to the hospital. You have a sister. And I was like, what? This is so crazy. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's it's an interesting discussion, though, specifically surrounding the fact that he just completely escaped all consequences for his actions. Yeah, yeah. It's it is it's kind of crazy. It's like <coughs> with the stuff that is <coughs> happening in this day and age, people who got away with horrible things for years, sometimes decades, and then you know it's like eventually all stones will be upturned and the crimes that you you know the corruption comes back to haunt you and all these people are sort of finally giving getting their comeuppance for things that uh you know they were able to get away with for so long and in many cases just thought yeah we're long behind them and would never come back to haunt them and that's like validating in a way of like oh yeah every dog has its day or whatever but there are some people who didn't they like they they, they missed whatever boat of being alive when th- that stuff started to like come to light or um or uh, just lucked out in some way at the time and they just kind and of I mean, they it, were able to just live their lives and die and then yeah i mean whether I, or not we separate the art from the artist or uh whether or not their legacy is tarnished or whatever like it doesn't matter to them yeah and i think specifically with with Hergé, like it's a almost cartoonishly simple Faustian bargain. He's like presented a choice. You work with the Nazis, you get the highest selling, most critically acclaimed three books of your career. Everything will be measured against them, which will be a good problem to have. And it will take you from a one hit wonder to an international icon. All you got to do is take this money from these Nazi death camps. Or risk that uh, maybe that all will still happen in a more yeah. morally cleansing way, or maybe it won't at all. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. And I think, but you know, like I, like I said before, Fritz Lang, yeah, was like, bye, nopey, nopey, wopey, yeah. And he, and we're still talking about him. So he, yeah, he was, he did the right thing and still was vindicated. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how I feel about it. I think I feel. I feel very, I feel sad for multiple people involved. I feel, and maybe I shouldn't, but I feel, I feel bad for, for Erge. Maybe I shouldn't. I don't quite know why I feel bad, but he seems like such a lost soul, you know? Mm-hmm. Like his character is constantly searching. And I don't think that comes from somebody who's also not searching. Well, I mean, I, I can, I can relate in a way, not in a way of like, I would willingly work with Nazis, but I think, and I don't know, I don't know if a lot of people struggle with this kind of thing or if it is sort of unique to certain people or if just, it's just kind of a thing that everybody deals with and they don't realize that other people are dealing with it. But, uh, you know, I I relate to the idea of like looking at certain people around me and thinking like that person just always knows exactly what they want. And they, and they always like seem to have the right instincts of like, they have a true North or they have like a, a good compass and then me feeling like I'm not that sure. I'm not as I just I'm not that sure about things. I don't feel like I like you look at some person and you're like that person like their path in life is carved in in stone. Um, and I and I just I I sort of envy uh, the, their their seeming ability to just kind of know where they're going. Hmm. Um, so I can kind of relate to the idea of somebody who just like. It seems to me like he just didn't, uh, he never quite had good instincts for like where to go in his life. Uh, and he always like sort of latched on to people around him to guide him. And whenever you sort of place all of your, all of your, um, uh, when you, when you place that amount of trust and, and control in out, in outside forces or, or, or your support system, 
you know, you can be, you can, you can have a good experience where you meet somebody who makes you a better person, or you can be totally led down a bad path by the wrong person. Um, and it seems like he just was like that. It seems like he just never quite had the good instincts to really like choose his own path and have convictions in that way. And, um, just allowed other people to uh, place too much control in the hands of others. And that was sometimes in some cases good for him. And and in a lot of cases, very bad for him. Uh, but I, but I kind of, I relate to that. I, you know, it's, it's, I think it's sort of adjacent to, to imposter syndrome of just like, it seems like people around me just know what they're doing a lot more. And I, I just don't think, I don't feel like I know what I'm doing as much as other people do. Yeah. I don't, I don't experience that. I'm just like, y'all are dumb. (laughs) I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. I don't know how to quite square the square the circle or cross the T or whatever the fuck the saying is. I don't know how to reconcile it. And I think for him, it's it's exceedingly interesting. The conversation is more fascinating than the actual crux of the argument because with certain people like Mel Gibson or Woody Allen or Roman Polanski, I find that there is a black and white where it's just like, for me, there it's a black and white thing. I don't listen to Michael Jackson's music, period. I just don't do it. And the, it, I think it boils down to a, the simple paradigm of that those four people that I just mentioned, they hurt another human being in a physical way. They, they irreparably damaged a human being. And I think there's a case to be made for the, if you wanted to, that Hergé's drawings irreparably hurt culture, irreparably hurt hundreds of thousands of people. I don't know. He contributed to a, a horribly negative machine. And I think that you would have a completely sound argument there. Um, and I don't even know if I would necessarily disagree. But I think when it comes to evaluating the work, for me, um, the fact that it is not directed at an individual and that it's harder to quantify the negatives of it on an individual scale play into my ability to continue to appreciate the work. You know, I, I, I think that there is something to be said for the fact that Zhang's influence really helped him grow as a person and like i said i mean i genuinely believe comics is the greatest art form on the history of the planet and that those people came together through the power of the medium and it helped both of them become better as people but also that's kind of cherry picking the story right like he also fucking took nazi gold like so i don't know i don't i don't know what my ultimate how how i ultimately land on it but i do still really enjoy the the work mm-hmm. i don't know i think it's uh it's got to be some kind of there's there's no there's no one size fits all um, uh, answer to every single artist, mm-hmm. um, problematic artist, in terms of like what your reaction is to consuming their art based on what they've done. It, it's some kind of equation factoring in a, a lot of different variables yeah. on a case by case basis. Because you know, from in my opinion, uh, you know, with the question of like, can you separate the art from the artist, and that's like this very nebulous question that people ask a lot. Um, and I think a lot of times the answer to it is usually kind of similar to that of just like, I, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how I feel about that. It's complicated. And I think that uh, that's sort of been my approach to it. But uh, in coming into this podcast, I think I just sort, sort of thought like, my my I'm just going to choose the answer to it. And, you know, the, for me, and the, the answer to it is, Yes, you can separate the art from the artist, and you have to, and everybody does it every day, whether they want to admit it or not. Um, I think that it just all depends on what your line is, what your personal line is in the sand for that. Um, 
you know, for, you know, for me, it's like, can I separate the art from the artists for like Bill Cosby? Definitely not. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't want to, I can't think of any examples right now of like things that I do separate the art from the artist for, but there's definitely people who, you know, in my, the, the equation I work out in my mind is like, yeah, I can still watch this or listen to this or whatever, um, because of X, Y, and Z factor. And it's like, you know, the, 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 the severity of the thing that they did, like you said, whether it, whether, whether it hurt somebody, uh, the, the level of pain or hurt that it caused, you know, how sort of long ago it was, whether or not that person is personally benefiting from you spending money on the thing slash keeping it culturally relevant. Um, there's a lot of different variables that kind of work out to an equation of like either, yes, I, I will keep doing this or no, I won't keep doing this. Um, uh, and that's just, that's just different. And it's, it's bespoke for every single person. Yeah. I mean, that's something, that's something I don't have a perfect answer for. And it's something I struggle with a lot Mm -hmm. because it's very hard for me to, it's very hard for me to separate the art from the artist because, and I think it comes actually from like collecting comics because as, as a comics collector, like you're obsessed with one person's visual solutions. So you like track down everything they do, even like covers and pinups and weird stuff. And so you're using the art as a way to examine the personality almost, or at least that's what I did and still do. And I don't know if that necessarily is applicable to everything else in kind of like movies and stuff where people tend to follow more like a cult of personality or something like that. And so for me, it's very difficult to separate from the art, the art from the artist, because I'm almost interacting with the art to know the artist. Yeah, but, you know, it's contextual on on case by case basis. Like that's one that's one thing that means that to you and that art form sort of lends itself to a certain type of dynamic where you can less separate the two. But then there's things like, you know, House of Cards, like Kevin Spacey being the star of that is certainly a blight on its existence. And I don't even, I never even watched House of Cards. I'm not, I never watched it. I'm not a fan of it. So I, you know, had the luxury of not even having to deal with this, but like, that that show was so many more people than just him. Yeah, like that totally. was that that the, you know he was he was the main character on it, but there was all these other great actors that were in it, and it was written by people that weren't him. And you know Fincher and he was by all he was a producer, yeah. but there was other producers. Like you know yeah. he was not he was not solely what that show was. Yeah. Um. And I it it's it's definitely understandable to. Uh, you know, just kind of not be able to watch it because you're just like, ah, just he's in it, and I just see him, and yeah. like that's understandable. But you know, whenever that, uh, whenever that show, whenever that shortly after that whole thing, that fallout of that, and then the show was like, yeah, it's getting canceled. At, at first, they said it was canceled. That later on, they changed it, and they're like, we're we're just gonna write him out and do one final season. But before that news was announced, people were calling for the cancellation of the show, and it's like, y- you realize that you're just like fucking over hundreds of people like it's very unfortunate that he's in it and obviously he can't be in it anymore but just to um celebrate the show getting canceled is like you realize that you're just like that like hundreds of people were put out of a job yeah this is deep cuts (laughs) i'm dave baker and i'm andrew price please sub the show you can find me online at www.heydavebaker.com and uh uh Zanga.com slash guitar man RPG. Uh, all right. Uh, tune in next time when we examine something else weird and cool that you'll probably like. Bye. Bye.
Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.